Well, hi, everybody. Welcome. Sorry to interrupt your conversations. Stop being friendly, please. You're only allowed three minutes of friendliness. Some of you are like, oh, I'm so glad someone finally got up there. I hate when they make us do that. But anyway, whether you loved that or whether that's as close to hell as you ever want to get, I hope you survived. And we are so uh, glad that you're here. I'm very, very glad to get to be back, as, uh, as Jake said. Uh, my name is Jonathan Wolfgang. I'm one of the pastors over at North Shore, and I'm insane, apparently. So, uh, so we are, uh, it is a tremendous honor. I've gotten to speak here a number of times and always look forward to the opportunities and the invitations. So uh, thanks for having me back. Um, I was chatting with Jake a little bit earlier, and so many great things that are going on here at Arbor. I hope you guys know what a great pastor you have, what a great what a great family this is and those cool things that are happening. But we're hearing about this series that's coming up next um, called Questions Jesus Asked, which is a fantastic thought. And we have all kinds of questions we'd like to ask Jesus, of course, most of us. But the, the cool thing is in Jesus' teaching, there are certain questions he asked of people that actually help us hone in on really matters, what really matters in life. And so next week, Jake's going to be kicking that off. And um, I... Wish I could be here. I got to work at the other church I work at, but uh, but I'll be checking it out podcast-wise, and um, and hope you'll lean into that and bring somebody along because it's certainly uh, something to be thinking about. So I've been a pastor now for um, a little over 20 years, and most of that time I have been part of a teaching team in the churches that I've served. I've worked at three uh, fairly large churches over that time and have taught fairly regularly. And so, and each of those churches had multiple services, and so literally hundreds and hundreds of talks that I've had the opportunity to get to give. And as you can imagine, there have been a number of strange or odd things that have happened um, with that many times talking. There have been um, little minor things, uh, little technical glitches, where, for instance, uh, it's happened where instead of turning my microphone on when I came up to speak, they turned on the mic of somebody that was backstage. And so we got to listen for a little while to their conversation before they realized, fortunately, nothing terribly embarrassing was said. Um, there was a time one Easter when I was speaking, and right in the middle of the message, all of the lights of 1,200-seat auditorium just mm, powered down. The room went totally black for several minutes, which is just awkward. What do you do with all those people for, uh, for several minutes? We survived and had a resurrection. It was Easter morning. So uh, anyway, um, there have been some more awkward moments. I've had people who've shouted out and actually wanted to debate kind of in real time during a message, which I'm certainly doesn't ho- hoping doesn't happen here today, I'm hoping. Um, some of you were here when I spoke last time a couple of months ago, you may remember, that during the talk in this second service, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Those of you who are here, there was a bug that crawled out onto the projector right over here, right on the lens, and so it was projecting as this giant shadow right on the screen. It was like some Japanese monster movie or something that we were enjoying together. So awkward things happen. This goes with the turf. There have been fire alarms that have gone off during messages I've done, Um, cell phones, of course, message notifications. Siri has started giving directions to wherever people were headed for lunch. These sorts of things happen from time to time. The most memorable, though, that I can recall was once I was working in a very large church in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I was just getting ready to speak. And as I was sitting, the worship and singing part was almost done. I was coming up right after that. And I noticed this older woman who I'd never seen before came walking down the aisle and across the front of the stage, and she started to turn and go up the steps that would lead you up onto the platform. And I was sitting right in the front row, so I jumped up and grabbed her arm and I said, ma'am, is, can I help you with something, you know, trying to stop her? And she looked at me and says, it's okay, I have something I need to tell the people. I said, well, why don't you come tell me first, right? Let's sit over here for a moment, and then we'll figure that out. She says, oh, honey, you don't recognize me, do you? 
And I said, no, I'll never forget this. I said, no, ma'am, I don't. It must be the lighting, right? Uh, and she says, oh, honey, I'm God. We should definitely sit down over here before you go out on stage, all right? So sure enough, she agrees to that. She comes over, and I've got my arm around her shoulder because I'm afraid she's going to bolt. And I was talking about this with a friend. I don't remember a single thing she said to me as we were sitting there because my mind's racing. We're almost done with the singing part. And as soon as the singing's done, I got to walk up on stage and teach. She's going to come with me. You know what I mean? So fortunately, I'm like praying, God, some, please, something, something. And so finally, a friend of mine who noticed something was a little off, he, he came over and sort of said, you know, it'd be easier for us to talk out in the lobby, that kind of a thing. And so literally, as the song ended and I was to walk up, he ushered her out of the room and, um, and, and, and crisis averted. I have no idea what I said when I spoke in that service because my mind was so frazzled. And for those who are wondering, I don't think she actually was God, okay, just for the record, because I asked her the name of my third grade teacher, which should be a softball for God, right? And she didn't know. So uh, I'm pretty sure that wasn't God. But anyway, if you do run into someone claiming to be God, that's a great question for to ask him. So anyhow, some strange things have happened. But there's something that happens actually quite routinely during a message. It's really usually no big deal. And um, sometimes when I'm standing up and talking, people will get up from their chair and walk out. And it, I imagine it happens for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes it's because they need to use the restroom. Sometimes it's because they need to top off their coffee. Maybe they've got restless kids or tickets to a game or somewhere else they have to go. Sometimes, I know, there have been times that people have maybe been uh, offended or disagreed with something that I said, and what's nice about those folks is they're usually generous enough to send an email right after to let you know all about it, but anyway. Um, but let me say, if you've ever walked out of a message, I want you to know this is the perfect one to do it, okay? Because walking out of this message may actually be the best possible response to what we're gonna talk about today, all right? It might be exactly what needs to happen. It would mean I did my job. And what I mean when I say that, I'm drawing from that well-known verse that Jesus teaches right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, that famous teaching in the uh, middle, uh, early in Matthew's gospel that walks through some of these incredible, the Beatitudes and all these amazing parables and teachings. But here's what Jesus has to say in the middle of that message. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, you come to worship in some way, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go, be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. You see, Jesus imagines a scenario where you walk into some kind of worship environment to give something to God. And as you sit down, as you arrive, Something comes to mind, a name, a face, a moment, something you said, something you did that caused harm to another person. Jesus gives this radical instruction. He says, keep these priorities straight. Before you come to worship, before you give what you intended to give or do what you intended to do, first, when someone you've harmed comes to mind, you drop what you're doing and you go and take steps to be reconciled with them. Make amends. So leave. Walk out. And today, maybe that's what needs to happen. So let me just tell you up front what I'm going to try to do in the next half hour or so. I'm going to try to beg you, to bribe you, to humor you, to motivate you, to inspire you to pick up the phone, 
or pick up the pen to write a letter or to get in the car to go to a meeting to begin the process of reconciling or making amends in a broken relationship in your life. It could be a former friend. You were so close, but then you did something you knew you shouldn't have, betrayed them. Could be an ex. Could be a family member, a mom or dad, a sibling. Could be a former business partner or someone that you used to work with. It could be any number of people. But to take the step to do what Jesus says, to make amends, to begin to take steps to reconcile. Because you may have no idea what God wants to do in you and through you because of that process. And to talk about this, I want to share a story. It's relatively well known for people who've been around church world for a while. It's from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. It's a story of a couple of brothers, specifically one of the guys who did some pretty serious wrongs but reached the point where God told him it was time to make amends. And we're going to see what we can and learn from his experience. And it will be familiar, as I said, to some of you. It's a story about a pair of brothers. And if you have a Bible, a physical copy, you can look it up. We'll also put it here on the screen so you can follow along with the story. You have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 32. It's the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 32. And as you're turning, those of you who have one, I want to tell you most of the story because this is actually a 20-year story. And I want to summarize 19 of those years and then look more specifically at the last of it, okay? So the story is about this pair of twin brothers, one named Jacob and one named Esau. Now, of course, being twins, which one came out first? Esau was the first baby to emerge, you may say. He uh, beat his brother out by just a few minutes. And so he's the oldest, and he is his father Isaac's favorite. We've got a dad named Isaac. His favorite son is a guy named Esau. And he is a man's man, okay? Total hunter type. I mean, literally, as the Bible describes Esau, one of the details it includes is how hairy his arms were, all right? You've got to have hairy arms for that to make it in the Bible, all right? <laughs> Esau is this just testosterone machine, okay? He hunts, tailgater type. He's totally into this stuff, all right? And he has a brother. His name is Jacob. And he is the younger brother, but only by a few minutes. And he is the favorite of his mother. He is a mama's boy. Their mom's name is Rebecca. His favorite channel is the Food Network, if you know what I'm saying, right? It's sort of similar like to your Jake, your pastor, who loves to act tough, but secretly has an account at MarthaStewart.com, okay? Let's just be honest about that. Anyway, so it turns out Jacob's a wonderful cook. He's lovely with the homework, okay, the housework. And so you have Isaac the dad, loves his son Esau. You have Rebecca the mom, who loves their son Jacob. And so you can imagine there's all kinds of tension in this house. Sibling rivalry, favoritism. I mean, their, their house had to have been a mess. And one day, you know the story maybe, Esau comes home from hunting and he is starving. He's famished. He'd run out of jerky, apparently, on the trail. And Jacob's been cooking. Maybe there was some new recipe he found on Pinterest, okay? And so the house smells fabulous. And Esau comes walking in and he wants some of this food. But Jacob, Jacob sees an opportunity here. And he says, I'll tell you what. You sell me your birthright, and I'll give you a little taste of this delicious food I'm prepping right now. And 
Because birthright is a huge deal in this culture. It's being the firstborn, essentially. You get double the inheritance. There's all sorts of benefits that come along with this. And Jacob, he's jealous. He wants this. And he sees his chance to trade some dinner for this dream, okay? And so Esau, who is not the first man in history to think with his stomach instead of his head, right? He agrees to trade this birthright for a bowl of soup. We don't really know what the food was. Porridge, who knows? But it better have been good because he gave away a lot to get it. And of course, eventually, he comes to regret his decision. Time goes by. Now, dad is getting older. Their father, Isaac, begins to go blind. He can't see very well. But just before he's going to die, he says, it's finally time for me to give the family blessing to the firstborn. And this blessing, again, a very big deal. This is sort of a, you are now the leader of the family. It comes all kinds of benefits. This is a huge deal. Well, Rebecca, mom, hears, ah, Isaac's about ready to give his blessing away. And so she comes up with a plan. She goes to Jacob and says, if you play your cards right, I can slip you in there instead of your brother, and you can get the blessing instead of that guy. So Isaac tells his son Esau, go out, do what you do, hunt us up some dinner, make a big meal, come back, and after we have this feast, then I'll bless you. But while Esau is out, Rebekah hurries up and prepares dad's favorite meal. She gives it to Jacob and says, here's what I want you to do. You slip in there, pretend to be your brother, even down to the detail of saying, get some animal hide, remember the shaggy arms? Get some animal hide, wrap it around your arms in case your dad gets suspicious. Sends him in, and then you will wind up getting the birthright and the blessing, Jacob. And he says, Mom, I'm not sure this is a good idea. She says, trust me, honey, trust me. Just a side note, you go back and read these stories. These are the heroes of our faith, friends. Conniving, manipulative liars, all right, who are playing people against each other. Every time I look at that, I'm reminded there's hope for me. That's what I'm reminded of, all right? There's hope for us. Anyhow. So Jacob actually does this. He gets some clothes to smell like his brother. He puts the shaggy arms on, the whole deal. And he goes in and fools the old man. And sure enough, Isaac gives this blessing. And it is a one and done kind of a blessing. Once you've given it, it is given. Once that ship has sailed, there's no return. And so he gives this blessing to the younger brother, Jacob. And he comes out of there and he and his mom are high-fiving until... Big brother comes home from the hunt. And he comes in and says, Dad, I want my blessing. And Dad says, I've already given my blessing. And Esau begins to weep, the scriptures say, but pretty soon he runs out of tears because instead he's filled with rage. And he swears that he will murder his brother. He will kill Jacob once his father dies. He swears it. Well, Rebecca, mom, overhears this and comes to Jacob and says, Sweetie, we got a problem right? Here's what I want you to do. You got to get out of here. And so she sends him far away to live with her brother, Jacob's uncle, a guy named Laban. And Esau is basically just cooling his heels. He's just waiting for his father to die so that he can go out and take revenge against his brother Jacob. Are you following the story? So that brings us up to 20 years uh, Jacob is in hiding. He's in, uh, he's in he's hiding, just escape. And while he's on the run, this is another crazy thing, God blesses Jacob. I'm like, my goodness, God, these guys are so, they're dirty, man. And yet you still pour out blessings on these dirty people. And thank God he does. 
because there aren't any other kind. Anyway, there aren't. Let's just be honest, right? So this gracious, generous God, even in his imperfections, he blesses Jacob. Bless this scoundrel, sure enough, and he gives him all kinds of stuff. His, his wealth prospers, he has animals, he's got a whole bunch of kids. Through the story, he winds up with a couple of wives, which is a whole other conversation for another day, okay? If you think you've got problems with your in-laws, read Genesis 29, all right? You'll see what happens. <laughs> Anyhow, Jacob, he takes off, and one day after 20 years, something happens. God comes to Jacob, and he says, you got to go home. you got to go home and face your brother Esau. And Jacob says what we would say, why in the world would I do that? My life is awesome. That's way in the past. Why in the world would I ever go back and have to face up and own up to this manipulation in my life? It's not going to do any good. This is not a good idea, God. I mean, you told me you're going to bless me. What part of bless me is go see your murderous brother? I'm doing just fine here, thank you very much. I don't want to have to deal with that. Why can't we just leave the past in the past? And let me just give you a heads up. Some of you may be newer to this. Others of you just haven't had this experience yet. Let me tell you something's going to happen to you. The same thing that happened to Jacob is going to happen to you. Some unresolved story in your past. Some open wound that you just would like to forget. Some mistake you made that caused harm to somebody else, whether you meant to do it or not. One day, God's going to knock on your heart and say, hey, for you to really heal, for you to live free from the shame, you remember that relationship? Maybe it was your mom. Remember that reason you moved all the way up here to Seattle? Hide up here in the corner, right? Maybe the whole reason you came up here is to get away from all that. It's time. It's time for you to deal with it. And deal with it may mean pick up the phone. It may mean initiate a very difficult conversation with somebody you haven't talked to in years. Because now you follow Jesus. And you have a new take on things like grace and forgiveness and healing. And someday it will happen, just like for Jacob. Remember that person? What about your mom? What about your brother? What about your ex? What about that old business partner? Or that old friend? There's a name in your head, isn't there? Truth is, there's some unfinished business there. So it's time. You might need to walk out of here today. And you will say in your own way, it's not a good idea. It won't work. Why in the world will we rip that scab up? They won't reciprocate. It won't do any good. They don't want to hear from me. There's no point. And you mark it down. God will say, I have a different point in mind. It may not work out like you're talking about, but I have something in mind. It's time. So Jacob, he quits arguing with God, he packs up his stuff, and he sets out to see this brother he hasn't seen in 20 years. This brother who swore he would kill him when he got the chance. And this is where we pick up the story. In Genesis chapter 32, starting there in verse 3, here's what it says. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. 
he instructed them, this is what you are to say to my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban, the uncle, and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I might find favor in your eyes. He's sort of sending out some scouts to kind of gauge the relational temperature of the situation, you see. And then he gets some good news and some not so good news. Verse 6. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you. Good news. And 400 men are with him. Not such good news, right? And Jacob thinks, what some of you are thinking right now with that name in your mind, there's no point in doing this. This is going to hurt. This is going to end badly. This will not work. And so he comes up with a plan. Genesis 32, verse 7. In great fear and distress. Anybody know those feelings? In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the group who were with him into two groups. And the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes out and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Maybe someone will survive the massacre and carry on my family line. Continue on. He does what we would do. He prays. When you're up against it, what else do you do? Verse 9. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, his grandfather, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed the Jordan, but now I have become two camps. So you say, save me. O Lord, save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come out and attack me. Oh, and also the mothers and their children. He's a little concerned about them, but mostly worried about himself. You know what I'm talking about here? This prayer, he says, God, this is on you. This was your idea. I might lose everything. This makes no sense to me at all. So if you want me to do this, you're going to have to move. You're going to have to do something miraculous. You know what I've learned? I've learned God likes those kind of prayers. Some of you, if we were to hear your story about the kind of hurt that's happened in your life with that person you're thinking of, what happened there, the thought of calling them, of reaching out to them, that produces all kinds of distress and fear in you, just like it did for Jacob. The fear of what they'd slam the phone down or they'd... they'd, call you all sorts of crazy names, blow you off, maybe hurt you. And you say, there's no good that can come from this. I am praying today that God will push you beyond your own reasoning and that you'll find yourself with a notebook writing a letter or on the phone making an appointment or in the car on the way to see somebody. God, I don't think this is a good idea. But if this is what you want me to do, here goes. I'll do what you, asked, what you asked me to do. The results, totally up to you. And can I just say, if you can get to that place where you say, God, it is up to you. When you step there, you have stepped into a place where God can do amazing things in you and through you and around you. 
And the end of your making amends story, it may not be everyone hugs and kisses and everything's wonderful again, because lots of stories don't end that way. But the goal of reconciliation isn't always reconciliation. Sometimes God's goal is to get us to trust Him enough that we'll enter into this process of reconciliation. Because in that process, He can do things He can't do in any other setting in our lives. And I'll say more about that in a minute. But let's see what happens here to Jacob. He comes up with another plan. He takes his big crew, he breaks them into eight or nine little pockets, and he sends them out in layers, sort of layers of peace offerings. And every one of these is sent with a spokesperson who when they get to Esau is supposed to say, these animals are a gift from your brother Jacob, your servant. They're peace offerings, efforts to make amends. In some sense, he's paying back what he stole from that birthright. And the Bible says, Jacob, having sent these people ahead, he stays behind by himself. He's terrified. Why? Because he's thinking what we think. There's no point in this. This is going to be painful. Skip ahead. Look at chapter 33, verse 1. He has another plan. It says, Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So Jacob divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. Here's what he's thinking. I'll send out the maid servants first, who I love, but you know. Then I'll send out my wife, my second favorite, Leah. Seriously. And then I'll send my favorite wife out, Rachel, and her son, Joseph. And then he goes ahead and bows down. Four, five, six. And he bows down that seventh time, coming up having no idea what to expect, maybe a knife in his chest, a club to his skull. But look what happens when he stands up, verse 4. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And Jacob comes to make amends. And God moves miraculously. And before you say, oh, sure, it's one of those Bible stories where the, everything ends happily ever after and all of that's wonderful, there's something I don't want you to miss here. You're missing the point if you think that's what this story is about. The key to seeing this entire story for what we can most learn from it, I think, is that we don't just make amends because we hope it will make us feel better. We don't just make amends because it will always patch up whatever scars may be there. In some sense, the actual making amends isn't really the point. It's the process. It's the humbling. It's the honesty. It's the courage. It's the character that gets built when you say, God, I don't want to, but if you say so, I will. See, the thing that shuts us down from doing anything like this is we think, oh, it won't end the way we want it to end. And all we mean by that is everyone will be hunky-dory and we'll have a kumbaya moment and they'll all be back for Thanksgiving. That's not necessarily what God may have in mind. Maybe it is. But I think what God would have us understand is this. The goal from God's perspective is not always just a happily ever after ending. His goal is to have us in the process 
Because in the process, he's able to do things in us and through us that surpass what can be done in any other kind of environment, in any other kind of circumstances. He changes us in deeper ways than we ever dreamed possible. Because those of you following along in a copy of the text, you know I skipped a big section at the end of chapter 32. Because something interesting happened there that would not have happened had Jacob just stayed in the comfort of his home, ignoring the past he needed to deal with, if he hadn't trusted God enough to go and see Esau, you know what happened in those verses? Jacob met God. And God renamed him. He said, because you trusted me, because you loved me enough to enter into this process, I'm going to change your name. Jacob means deceiver. I'm going to instead name you Israel. I'm going to, you ever heard that name? There are going to be descendants who come after you that will live on for generations to the end of time. You will be the father of the nation. Jacob met God in a new way. And you know where that happened? It happened in the process of reconciliation. So just real practical here, I can make you this promise. If you will trust God enough and take this step and enter that process, God will begin to do some amazing things in you. He will begin to deal with that pride that is at the root of so many of our hearts. He will tear down some of the walls that are actually affecting the other now current relationships in your life. And you don't even realize it. If you'll commit to this process, knowing that you can't guarantee what the results are going to be, but many times that's not the point at all. God will do things in that environment he can't do any other way, any other place. I promise you, you will meet God in a new way. Now, this isn't easy. I don't pretend that it is. And maybe some of you are wishing you'd skip today because you'd rather not have been challenged with this talk. I get it. It hasn't been much fun to write, <laughs> to be honest. Because it's forced me to have to say, are you doing this? Are you making this list? So here's what I'm using as sort of a guide through this process. Maybe you'll find it helpful. Very practical. You may want to scribble these down, or maybe you're smarter than me and can remember. First, begin the process by making a list of the people that you've harmed. Just start writing down names all the way back. For Jacob, this list is long, because if you read much more of his story, you'll know he does a lot of horrific things to people. He's so self-centered. He mistreats wives. He does terrible stuff. There have been many people over his life that he'd swindled or deceived. So it begins by making a list. And I'll tell you, as I said, I've been thinking a lot about this myself, digging into this and going back over and making this list. It's a long list. There are a whole lot of them, but let me just show you a few as to give you an example. My, my dad, my mom, my brother, my wife, her name's Lori, my kids, Stone, Macy, and Piper, those are my kids. And then in the column next to them or right next to their names, I begin to write down, have I ever done anything that might have harmed them? Have I ever been deceitful or stubborn or selfish or hurtful in any way? And I just go down and write it down. My dad? No. Mom? No. My brother? No. My wife, Lori? Maybe a little one time. My kids, no, 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 I'm lying to you, friends. That's what's happening right now. The true list is much uglier than that, let me assure you, all right? Much uglier. 
Stuff I did on purpose and stuff I did by accident. But it hurt them. And many, many more than them. Maybe you need to do this in categories. That's how I'm having to do this. Family, friends, old neighbors, co-workers, maybe people in this church. Maybe people in churches here in town. Then phase two, you write, what is the harm that I've caused? And I mean be specific as possible. Just begin to catalog. For Jacob, I took advantage of my dad's disability, his blindness, and I humiliated him in the community by tricking him into giving me something that wasn't rightfully mine. I violated the most closest union I should have in life, my family, by stealing from my brother when I didn't deserve it. I just wanted it. And it robbed him of all kinds of blessing that God wound up channeling my way instead of his. He begins to catalog all of those things down. Do the same in your life. How does what I did harm that person? Because you know what, for me, I think a lot about how other people have harmed me. I give you a long list. But I tend to gloss over the ways my harm has hurt others. I don't think as long about that. It's an old story, maybe you heard it before, about this mom. She has a seven-year-old son, Billy, and a brand-new baby. They're both in the next room. Scream coming from the next room. And the mom shouts, what was that? And Billy says, Mom, the baby pulled my hair, and it hurts. And the mom explains, sweetheart, she's just a baby. She doesn't know how much it hurts. Well, a few seconds later, there's another scream that comes from the room. And mom again yells out, what was that? And Billy said, now the baby knows. And he says... Now the baby knows. And one of the reasons we keep hurting people is because we don't think about how what we do harms them. We gloss over it. And in this step, I ask God, help me think about what I usually avoid thinking about because it's uncomfortable. Now the baby knows. Three, am I willing to make amends? We're not even there to make amends yet. Am I even willing and this is kind of a private thing just between you and God. And I bet God's talking to some of you here right now. That name is in your mind. And this is a huge question. Are you willing? And you, in this step, just start to think about that. Work your way down the list. Yes, I think I am willing. Maybe some names, no, actually, God, I'm really not willing. Can you help me with that? I, honesty is the key here. It doesn't help anyone to just pretend. And this idea of making amends goes way back, all the way in the Old Testament book of Numbers. It's recorded, Say to the Israelites, Any man or woman who wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord is guilty and must confess the sin they've committed. They must make full restitution for the wrong they have done, add a fifth of the value to it, and give it all to the person they have wronged. We don't follow that rule by rule because it's Old Testament teaching, but the theme and concept is crystal clear. There's a connection between asking forgiveness, confessing sin, and making restitution, making amends. And this will raise all kinds of questions. What if it costs too, too much? What if the other person doesn't deserve it? What if it would be embarrassing to admit I did that? What if it would, be, what if it would damage my reputation? I mean, surely God wouldn't want that. What if my spouse... They've done far more to me than I ever did to them. 
What if I stole something at work? I mean, I could lose my job. I could go to jail. So let me just remind you that this only applies to people who have said their lives are not their own, who've surrendered to Jesus. This is only for that group. People who've said, Jesus, I will do what you ask me to do because you are my Lord. You are the leader of my life, not me. If you're not a follower of but if you're a Christian, follower of Jesus, then this is where you begin to live, where you say, Jesus, whatever you want, I'll do it. Even the hard stuff. That's the kind of character and courage that God wants to build in those who have actually surrendered to him and not just jump through some ritual hoops. And let me mention one other quick thing here. Talk with a trusted Christian friend before you go to that person that you've harmed. Because there are sometimes, they're rare, but there are sometimes when you need not to go to that person. For example, maybe there's been physical abuse there. And if you went to them, it might put you physically in danger. It is not good for you. It would not be good for them. So it's best not to go in that case. There will be those special circumstances, but they will be very rare. We tend to rationalize that. They will be very rare, and having an outside friend that can help us process this, critical equipment in this process. And then four, I go to the person and I ask them for forgiveness. I confess my harm. I don't explain. I don't make excuses. I don't try to make it look better. I don't try to say, but look what you did to me, or look what was happening in my life that made me act that way. None of that stuff. I just own up to it and say, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And then I ask them this very vulnerable question. What can I do to make this right? How can I make this up to you? And you're already thinking, they're not going to respond like Esau did. What if they don't accept my apology? You know what? That's not up to you. It's just your job to go. Like Jacob, your job is to go and leave what happens up to God. And you'll be surprised how often hearts will melt, but not always. Now, what if I tried it before? I tried once to reach out to them. It didn't work. Try again? I don't know about you, but God's sure been real patient with me. And what I've found is relationships usually aren't broken overnight. They don't get healed overnight. There's no microwave on this one. It's a slow cooker. But I'll tell you, however that person responds, whether they accept it or not, in the middle of that kind of process, God brings new level of courage and character than you ever dreamed. He'll make you new. By doing this, we break free of one of the most debilitating chains that so many people carry, the chain of shame. The freedom that comes with being honest about our failures, the relief that comes from naming our shame and putting it down can change your life. It changed Jacob's life. His whole identity was changed over this. From a deceiver Jacob to Israel, the namesake of the people of God. Certainly not magically perfect from then on, but transformed in deep ways. Jacob met God in a new way while he was in the process of making amends. And that's where you'll meet him too. So the only question that's left is, will you do it? Because I know there's a name and a face in your mind right now. Maybe many. So we're going to end this service quite abruptly, very intentionally. I, 
ask Jake for his permission to do it this way because it's a little strange, especially as a guest speaker. It's a surefire way never to be invited back. Because normally after a message like this, the band would come up and do a song, and then there'd be sort of some closing announcements and some sort of blessing, and then we'd all leave. But we're not going to do any of that today. We're just going to end this real abruptly. It's a guy I know. He was on a recent Southwest flight, and uh, when the wheels touched down and they pulled up to the gate, absolutely true, the, opened the door, the flight attendant came on to the speaker. All he said was, we landed get out. That's all he said. That's all he said. Classic Southwest, right? Classic. Pretty memorable way to end a flight. It was very funny. So we're going to end this service rather abruptly because remember what Jesus said. If you're offering your gift at the altar, you come to worship and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave. Leave the gift there in front. Go and be reconciled to them then return to celebrate. And if you think of someone you know, that relationship is broken, you've done something, you've said something, don't blow it off. I don't care how much it will cost you. I don't care how hard it is. I don't care if you've tried before. God will be with you in this. People have been doing this since Jesus and before. And some of you here, this is your day. I am dead serious about this. Jesus dead serious about this. There is life and power and freedom on the other side. So get out your cell phone, like right now, because there's a call you have to make. There's a list you've got to start to collect and craft. There's a letter you need to write. There's a prayer you need to pray. God, I'm not willing right now. I wish I'd stayed home this weekend. Help me be willing. There's something you have to do. Because one thing I know about this church, about Arbor, I know the dream Jake and every leader here has is that you won't be the kind of church that hears a talk and leaves and says, that was a nice talk or that wasn't such a nice talk. You're the kind of people who will say, I will do what Jesus said to do. So we landed. Get out.